It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have reached the first Wednesday uh, of the new season. I call it that because it's after the Easter holidays. Uh, Prime Minister's Questions is back today, of course. We'll get Sir Keir Starmer uh, jousting away with Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. I wonder what they'll be talking about. Will it be Extinction Rebellion and their plans to disrupt the London Marathon this weekend? Or uh, will it be something to do with migrants? Because, of course, we've now got a variety of stories about how to deal with the migrant crisis. Rishi Sunak has already pretty much uh, accepted that he won't be able to stop the boats before the next election. Uh, we're told that in uh, Wales they'd like to offer uh, asylum seekers £1,600 a month uh, just for being there. Uh, it'd be almost like coming to the, uh, the World Series uh, of goodness and just getting paid to do absolutely nothing at all. Uh, we're going to find out from Keir Starmer why the NHS is broken. We're also going to talk about fat cats, not the ones uh, that run companies in this country but the ones that run councils in this country because believe it or not, there are lots and lots and lots of them who are earning ridiculously high amounts of money, more than £100,000, right? 2,759 of them all over the country, uh, from Croydon uh, all the way up to Yorkshire, to Humberside, to Southampton. Some of them are making half a million pounds a year for running your council. And it ain't pretty, I have to say. Why are we giving them so much money? This is where all the public money is actually going. But let's kick off, first of all, with William Clouston, who is, of course, the leader of the Social Democratic Party. We're going to talk to him about a great many things. But first up, uh, we're going to talk to him about this Extinction Rebellion craziness that's going on. Uh, apparently, they've offered the government some kind of ultimatum that if they don't do something by a certain date, all hell will break loose because, of course, as they know and as they tell us every single day, uh, the planet is ending. We're going to talk about posh yobs as well because that bloke, uh, Ed Red, uh, the unready, as I'm calling him, he jumped on a snooker table with a load of orange powder. It turns out he's the son of uh, some very, very wealthy investor uh, who's worth millions and millions and millions of pounds. He's got a sister uh, who works for AstraZeneca. Oh, he's got a brother who works for AstraZeneca. He's got a sister who does something else. You know, these posh boys and girls are ruining the lives of ordinary people by gluing themselves to motorways, you know, smashing up petrol pumps, jumping on snooker tables, disrupting the Grand National, and I believe something has to be done. And it can't any longer just be the regular law that deals with it, because they're clearly able to get around that. So we're going to explore ways of possibly punishing them. Maybe we go after uh, Edred's daddy. 
who lives in a great big house in Cambridge. Maybe we'll confiscate his Range Rover. How about that for a start? 0344 499 1000 is the number. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the Independent Republic. This is Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Wednesday, Prime Minister's questions coming up a little bit later on. We will be taking lots of your calls, of course, as well. Jonathan Gullis, MP, is going to join us as well. He's got plenty to say about the European Court of Human Rights. But let's say a very good morning, first of all, to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. William, welcome to the show. Morning, Mike. Nice to see you. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's kick off with these uh, Extinction Rebellion maniacs because uh, they really have become something more than an irritant, you know, because we were told some months ago that they were no longer going to do what they call disruptive activity because they didn't think it was actually changing anything and nobody was really paying any attention to them. They seem to have sort of done a reverse ferret on that and have now decided it's a good idea to disrupt things like the Grand National. And I know that people say, oh, well, it wasn't them. They're all the same to me. It doesn't really matter what they call themselves. Extinction Rebellion, Animal Rebellion, you know, Just Stop Oil, all of the same people. And isn't it funny that it turns out that they're all the sons and daughters of the wealthy? I'm not surprised about that at all, Mike. These people are probably the only people in society that have time to do this yeah. sort of thing and get up to the antics they do. I mean, you've got to ask who's in charge? Who's in charge of this country? So the individual that did the uh, disruption of the snooker the other day has yeah. uh, been reported has done several other things in the last 18 months. And I would ask plainly, ask the government this, why isn't this person in jail? Yeah. Well, because he's a recidivist, isn't he? I mean, he continues. This is, this is what we used to have the problem with before when they would be arrested on the M25, they would be taken to court, uh, they would be sentenced, and even if they went into prison for, I don't know, a week or something like that, they'd come out and go straight back to the M25. Yeah, and until we have a system which actually apprehends them and sentences them and gives them a little bit of time in prison to think about what they're doing, disrupting. I've said before, and we you know, we know, Mike, we've dealt with these cases before and discussed them. Anyone taking action on motorway is putting lives at risk. You yeah. should get a serious, a very, very serious prison sentence for that. Yeah. And what we have does the government have to wait until someone is actually killed? A police officer was injured in a, an event a few months ago. Uh, so these are very irresponsible individuals. And mm. until I'm just going to ask the government again, who's in charge, you or, or Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, exactly right. Because when we look at this guy, Ed Red, um, who comes from a, a very wealthy family based in Cambridge, nothing against people with money, obviously, as you, as you know. Um, but his father is a, a sort of multi-million pound investor into various companies, into various funds and all that kind of thing. You know, maybe uh, you go after the members of the family and you say, well, all right, if you're... Um, you know, going to be spending uh, public money at this rate, for example, the damage that he does to art galleries or the damage that he does to snooker tables, go and replenish the money. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's sins of the father. I don't think you can, you can punish uh, family members for what another family member does, but we should be aware of what's happening. And just to put it out there, what's happening is we've got a sort of woke uh, elite. Um, you had Matt Goodwin on the other day. Yes. He's written an excellent book about the new elite. What they do, Mike, is that they virtue signal. It's a status game, this. What it is, is it's a status game. Someone like that, the way he climbs up the status hierarchy is by doing things like that. And he shows to his friends and other people that he's virtuous. In fact, he's not virtuous. He's just the people paid good money, hard-earned money to watch the snooker, and he ruined their evening. There's no yeah. virtue about it. 
No, exactly right. And there was a woman in the uh, newspapers today who told of uh, how eco protesters caused two unseated horses at the Grand National um, to, to knock her unconscious because uh, they had somehow blocked a route where the horses could have run. And instead of running out of the way, they ran into her. And she's still on crutches as a result. And frankly, if they tried to dis uh, destabilise or, or get involved in um, the marathon at the weekend, which is a massive event, impossible to police against these bozos, um, you know, it could it could end up in a very bad place. Well, it could be lethal. I mean, the the just to go back to the Grand National, um, the owner of one of the the horses that died in the Grand National actually said that the unnecessary disruption stressed the horses, and you had a bad start from there. But they don't take any consequences for anything they do. No. Yeah, crazy. That a marathon is a massive event. You start blocking things and disrupting the organisation of a marathon, you will have someone that has a cardiac arrest. And it'll be on you. Yeah. They, I just want them to wake up. But I really want the government to wake up as well. You know, the people are doing this without with impunity, Mike, mm. and they need dealing with. Exactly right. Let's have a look, uh, if we can, uh, at, a, at a, a sort of ultimatum that was given yesterday by Extinction Rebellion. Laughably, because when you watch this, you can't quite believe that it's not some kind of, you know, brass eye parody. But this is Marine van der Geer, uh, who I think is uh, one of the people that runs Extinction Rebellion, although, of course, they claim to be anarchists, so nobody really runs it. Um, have a look at this. And the government has until 5pm on Monday, the 24th of April, to agree to enter negotiations about the two collective demands that we have presented to them today. They've had decades to do something. Time is up. Yeah, sure it is. I mean, she might as well be sitting there stroking a cat or saying, you know, uh, <laughs> for heaven's sake, you know, what on earth do they think they're doing? And who do they think they are as well? That's Utterly childish stuff. This, I mean, it's that is like a sort of thing you see on a parody account. Yeah, you know? I mean, what I do we want? yeah, we want it by X. I mean, who's in who's in charge? I you've got to remember, Mike. Another point we're going to make is that all of this stuff's very, very anti-democratic. All of these people have votes, right? We have yeah. elections regularly. Put yourselves up and get yourselves elected. Yeah, you know, and you speak to MPs, Mike, about this stuff. You speak to MPs, and these people never get in touch. No, of course they, they don't. And, and, and I was listening to some police um, organisations talking last night and they also deliberately do not engage with the police. And the police say, look, normally if people are demonstrating, you know, we make contact with them, we find out who is sort of running it and we try and come to some arrangement whereby, you know, they can have their demonstration, but they can do it safely and, and without too much disruption to something mm. like the marathon. But with Extinction Rebellion, they don't have that relationship with the police. They don't talk to them. They don't wish to have anything to do with them. And so the police are kind of flying blind on it. Well, they are. But the but again, we're governed by people that haven't. I mean, you know, Tory MPs will say the right things, but they don't actually do very much. We're governed by people that don't realise that in the, if the incentives are wrong, this stuff will just get worse, right? So this individual at the snooker, he's not. He's done. He's got a history of doing loads of things. His status goes up in the group. He feels emboldened, yeah. and he will do more. And until society, until the police and the government get a handle on it, it will just get worse. It's very like the migrant crisis, which we might talk about. You know, you, these people don't seem to understand the basic incentives. No, and again, the public sort of um, policy on it is out of date because it's all very well saying we will curtail um, these kinds of demonstrations or we will make sure that you can only demonstrate in certain ways. You know, these people are cleverer than that and they will sort of somehow get around it. But I was interested in seeing a quote from uh, a barrister this morning called Dennis Noel Kavanagh uh, who said that people who donate to these people might actually be sponsoring a crime. 
which could indeed mean uh, that it could also be incitement to committing a crime. Um, and that uh, takes on some very interesting manoeuvrings. And he says uh, the proceeds of Crime Act could be brought to bear. So there is there are sort of remedies possibly in, in law uh, if we look hard enough for them. And it might be then that you, it's not so much going after the family members or the father or anything like that, but certainly going after some of the big sponsors of this lot. And many of them are sort of ageing rock stars, people like Dale Vince, the ecotricity guy, who's quite open about the fact that he backs Just Stop Oil. He's given them a quarter of a million quid just the other week, you know. Um, but if that becomes an incitement to commit crime, perhaps they, because it, it's because they're so well funded, they can do all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, someone should tell Dale Vince that there are certainly better causes than that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, there, there may be a legal route to look at the proceeds, you know, and the donations. That might be a legal route. But I, Mike, I'm calling for a more direct route. I don't mm. want to go three sides round a square to get this done. I want emergency legislation, if necessary, to say that if you block a public highway or whatever, you just get some, you do some time. You mm. go to prison. That's what we want. Yes. And that would sort it out. And people, and then someone would say, oh, yeah, but it doesn't sort, it's not a, a cure. Well, it's a cure for the time that this individual is in prison, right? Mm. Well, absolutely right. And it means he can't glue himself to anything while you're driving your car around and doing your, uh, your daily business. But stay where we are, William. We, we will indeed come to the migrants because that's what we're going to talk about next. Coming up, um, apparently the welcome signs, the woke welcome signs at Dover uh, are going to be replaced. Well, that's a step in the right direction. How about you stop the people coming? Never mind the signs. You take the signs down, that doesn't stop them coming. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Much to do and uh, plenty of time to do it. And we're here until one o'clock, of course. And we've got Prime Minister's questions at midday. So you don't want to miss any of that. Apparently, Sadiq Khan is appearing at some London book fair. Um, I don't know whether he's flogging his new book or whether he's just warning people their sperm counts are going to drop uh, if they don't stop driving around in cars. Uh, we shall see. But there he is uh, talking. So he does actually talk occasionally. Uh, he never talks to me, uh, never talks on this station, never talks on this show. Has been asked many times, multiple times to come on and justify his ludicrous ULES uh, expansion plan, which has now been suggested might be unlawful uh, by a high court. It's going to be examined over the course of the next few weeks and months, but it may well be that his dream uh, to pedestrianise London uh, is at an end, which would never, ever make me more happy. Tremendous stuff. Anyway, uh, we've been talking to William Clouston this morning about uh, the state of the nation, the state of Extinction Rebellion, their threat to disrupt the London Marathon this weekend and to have a kind of summer um, uh, of agony and misadventure for the rest of us. And no doubt it will happen because they do like demonstrating the good weather, don't they? They don't like the, the, the rain very much or the cold. But let's talk about the rain and the cold and the weather because um, even as we speak, William, I'm guessing, uh, but there are probably a couple of hundred people landing at Dover having come over on a small boat from uh, uh, from. Calais, because anything that seems to stop them is actually the weather. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's the pattern we've seen, Mike, over the years, and it'll continue. Um, and I'm sad to say, very sad to say, that criminal gangs have the measure of this country and uh, its government, and I see no prospect at all of it being solved. I was very surprised, actually, that Sunak made uh, dealing with the migrant crisis in the Channel one of his five pledges. And I said at the time uh, that I didn't think he had any chance of, of solving it because the Tories are not prepared to do what's necessary to solve it. Uh, it may be unpleasant to some, but you've got to get out of the ECHI, you've got to get out of the 51 Convention, which are totally outmoded, and you've got to process any unsolicited arrival offshore. And it's very interesting that Braverman has now declared this an emergency, um, and it's been an emergency for a long time, 
Uh, and I, I, I welcome that. But what, what will result from it? Um, I mean, if, if it is an emergency, rather like COVID or the pandemic, then what I would want to see is the government building uh, a detention centre on Ascension, something like that, and dealing with it ourselves. I promise you, Mike, if you arrived in Dover on the beach and you were taken directly to a detention centre in Ascension Island and then deported back to where you came from, uh, you would not arrive in the first place. Right. Exactly right. And uh, you and I have said this before and agreed on it before, that the only thing to do is to stop the people actually coming here physically, because as long as they get here, the chances are they're going to stay. Whether they, whether they disappear into the, uh, into the sort of undergrowth of, of the black economy, whether they go and join up with some criminal gang, whether they become enslaved into some job or other, um, or whether, in fact, they just sit in a hotel waiting to be given a house. Because what we do know now is that an awful lot of people are being asked to, to, if they've got property, donate it effectively to the council who will pay you as a landlord, bucket loads of money, pay your council tax, pay all the, all the bills to house these people for five years. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane and it's only going to get worse. I mean, the six everyone's aware of the £6 million a day that is spent in hotels yeah. uh, and a quick calculation uh, will tell you that you could, you could house, you could build houses to permanently house 100 people a day for that, mm. if, you, if you wanted to. Uh, it's just insane. So it, it will only get worse. The costs, our system is overwhelmed. Uh, you know, the, the home office processing system is overwhelmed. They're looking at uh, RAF, ex-RAF bases in Essex uh, in, in the teeth of, of local disapproval yeah. of this. You know, people, national government, when it wants to do something, we saw, again, we saw this in the pandemic, when it wants to impose something on a locality, it will simply just ram raid and, 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 and do it without any consultation. Uh, so the whole system is a mess. And I, I'm going to just return to it because we've just got to make the point that until the incentives change, uh, the migrants will uh, continue to uh, arrive, illegal migrants. Yeah, and you were talking about the paucity of, of, of sort of thought and, and policy uh, on, on Extinction Rebellion. Similarly here with the, the migrant crisis, you've got this whole kind of rump of, of the new elite establishment that you were talking about um, mm. uh, the, 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 that we were, we were discussing last week with Matt Goodwin. And I'm looking at some figures from the Home Office today, right? Apparently the Home Office since 2018 has completed a total of 89,385 asylum applications according to their own figures but what it means is that between 2018 and 2022 only 11% of asylum decisions have related to small boats which mm. says to me you know when we hear uh, various MPs and, and and sort of lawyers saying well there aren't any safe routes there aren't any other ways to come they have to come on the boats well where are all these other people uh, with their asylum claims coming from if something like um, you know uh, practically 90% of people claiming asylum are not coming on small boats well, it's, not, it's nonsense anyway. I mean, the, uh, we or anyone aware of the Home Office's policy will be aware of the specific see, schemes that the UK has in place now yeah. for uh, legal uh, routes. And, and aside, well, you know, the, the Hong Kong scheme, the Afghanistan scheme, the Ukraine scheme, yeah. are, are schemes that we do. But, I, you know, all the sort of middle class people at dinner parties getting embarrassed about having a proper border mm. ought to wake up and, and realise that there's nothing moral in having a, a, a system that's, 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 that's run by criminals. No. And these the people that arrive are not the most deserving. I've said many times mm. before, you, if you have, you know, 45, 50,000 people rocking up, m most of whom are young men who don't, in my opinion, have a, a valid claim. France is a perfectly safe country. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, these are yeah, not... I managed to survive a whole week there um, last week, and it was actually yeah. fine. I was yeah, surprised. Exactly. I thought it was really dangerous, you know. 
Yeah, and every time someone like Jeremy Corbyn is, is interviewed, he says, you know, people are free, fleeing appalling systems. Well, I love friends, you know, so anyway, so it's nonsense. But they're not the most deserving. And it's not moral to take a lot of fit young men. No. You've just decided to break in, basically. In, in, when you could go, you could get, Mike, you could go to UN camps in the Middle East and other places in war zones and select uh, women and, and children who would be much more deserving mm. to this. This whole system has gone out of control. And I'm waiting. I, I, I really wish, I really wish we had a government that dealt with it directly and, had, and put a system in place to stop the incentives. And I've said before, you can't blame. If this is what we're offering, people will continue to rock up. Yeah, of course they will, because they know, as I say, that, that, that the system is so bad in terms of even just, you know, getting a, an asylum claim through. It takes something ridiculous like, you know, it's going to take 10 years, practically, the way things are going. So they know they'll be able to stay. But let's let's just move finally on to Prime Minister's questions returning today. Um, there's been some interesting toing and froing, it seems to me, in, in the sort of Easter period between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. We've had the Labour attack ads, which which haven't gone down very well, and I don't think have done Keir Starmer any favours. Um, we've got Rishi Sunak talking about maths. We've got, you know, um, the, the, the sort of the economy still pretty much sort of on hold. It's kind of clinging on by our fingertips as we wait to see what happens. Um, mm. I don't really know, and I can't imagine what it will be, uh, that PMQs is a kind of, uh, is, is, a, is a lightning rod for. I can't imagine what the focus of that will be today. Can you? I think that's a very good observation, Mike. I think what we're seeing in Starmer is an individual who's ratted on all his socialist mm. uh, um, uh, ideas to get to become leader of the Labour Party. You know, he became leader promising utilities nationalisation, mm. which is something I support. He, you know, talking about nationalisation of the railways, which again, which I support, a large housing, all that stuff, stuff's been ditched. What's the what's the point of voting for Starmer now? Mm. You'll get a managerial technocrat, rather like Sunak. So I agree. PMQs, what are they going to talk about? Probably probably trivia. And they're increasingly looking quite similar. I mean, they've both got their five pledges, yeah. which overlap. So, no, the poor old public needs something better to vote for. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was funny. Yesterday I was having a conversation and, and we, we sort of collectively came up with the idea that you've got Keir Starmer, um, a Labour leader, trying to imitate the, the, the Conservatives. And you've got Rishi Sunak, a Conservative leader, who isn't Conservative. And they do kind of meet somewhere in the middle in this kind of rather amorphous blob, don't they? It's dreadful. And, and, and you know, people are frustrated. I mean, you know, some of the basics. I want, I want a government that does some of the basics. I don't want a big government that does things that we don't need. Right. Some of the basics I want done. And, you know, think, I mean, funnily enough, yesterday the issue of uh, free school meals come up. To me, as a social democrat, the idea that a child would go to, to school and not be fed is ridiculous. Yeah. And we, we are a wealthy enough country to pay for school meals, and, you can, and those school meals can be nutritious. And yet, the Labour Party are up, you know, fussing about it, and, you know, Rachel Reeves probably say, no, you can't afford it. Mm. And people want better than that. You know, we're not asking for much, Mike. No, you would think so. But, I mean, I'll tell you where you can find a lot of money, and that's in the councils, because we'll be talking about that a little bit yeah. later on as well. William, thanks very much indeed. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party there, uh, saying, surely we are a wealthy enough country to look after our own. And, yes, we don't need big government. Uh, but I'll tell you what, we also don't need big councils. Some of the s shocking figures that have come out this morning, thanks to the Taxpayers Alliance, on how much money people are making running councils in this country. These are not councillors. These are the kind of executives that run the council. They're not elected uh, and they are on massive money. Some of them, half a million quid a year. It's extraordinary. Coming up, we're going to talk to Jonathan Gullis, MP. He's got something to say about the migrant crisis as well. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots to do, lots to do, and lots to talk about. Don't forget to subscribe to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, the podcast every single day. Uh, you'll never miss a moment from the show. Subscribe and download. No, no, no. Sorry, I'll try that again. Subscribe and download now, now, um, from wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you know where to go. Uh, but it's a great thing. Go and get it. Um, today, uh, we're going to have Prime Minister's questions returning, as we said to um, uh, um, William Clouston there. But I don't know what's going to be the focus of PMQs today. But we have, luckily, somebody we can ask. Jonathan Gullis MP is here. Uh, he's one of those Tory MPs uh, who says that we don't really have to take any notice of the European Court of Human Rights. And I think he's actually right. Jonathan, a very good morning to you. Hello, Mike. How are you? Good very, to be in the home yeah, of Common Sense. Very well indeed. Very nice to see you. Um, a lot of talk this morning about migrants. There's, you know, an incredible story in The Times today saying that, you know, only something like 11% of all the asylum seeker claims that were granted between 2018 and 2022 were from people on small boats. So if other people are getting asylum from other means, surely that means that all these lefties who are telling us that there's only one way they can come, they can only come on a boat, is rubbish. It is rubbish, Mike. We, you and I both know that half a million people have been granted asylum in this country via safe and legal routes in Ukraine, Hong yeah. Kong, Syria and Afghanistan, uh, which is meant that is what we should be doing, helping those most in need. No one in this country disputes that. But when people are choosing to put thousands of pounds in the hands of smuggling gangs, when people are choosing to needlessly risk their lives, when people are choosing to illegally enter our country, game the system, and particularly the fact that over 70% of these are young single men, then that tells you everything we need to know. We need to take back control of our laws and our borders. We need to stop this abhorrent trade in human misery. And we need to stop particularly what we know is going on which is criminals trying to smuggle into our country in most cases particularly from Albania uh, to avoid going through our uh, border checks so they can get involved in the Albanian drugs gangs that sadly riddle communities across our great country replacing what was predominantly the Vietnamese drug gangs in the past. Yes, absolutely right. Um, and you've had a meeting with the Prime Minister, you and some colleagues uh, from the backbench of the Tory party, uh, to ask whether the law can be changed and whether he can make it happen uh, so that the ECHR isn't such a roadblock to this. So, as you know, Mike, people like myself, Danny Kruger and Sir Bill Cash have been working on amendments that we put down at committee stage. We've been entering in discussions over the Easter recess and, as you say, yesterday with the Prime Minister face to face. We've had some really, I think, good and constructive discussions about how we can really toughen up the legal language around not just interim orders, that those are the ones that prevent people being put on the plane, but also those Rule 39 orders that make are not legally binding, although you know uh, the way that they are being used internationally is to make out as if they are. This was not something that was ever included right. in the original European Convention of Human Rights when we signed up to it in the 1950s. So I hope will uh, help the Prime Minister and really make it clear to our UK courts that these orders are to be ignored. They have no jurisdiction in our great country. We took voted to take back control of our laws and our borders in 2016 and back that up in the 2019 general election. And hopefully, therefore, we can deliver as quickly as possible on getting people on the plane to Rwanda or back to Albania or other safe third countries. Because if we don't, the Conservative Party will be wiped out of the next election. Well, exactly right. And also, you've got countries like Germany and Sweden who already now, who have signed up to the ECHR, uh, kicking out Albanian um, asylum seekers who come into Germany and into Sweden. They're not allowed to seek asylum there uh, because it's illegal and because they don't pay any attention to the ECHR. So it's perfectly possible to do it without becoming, you know, as we would be told, you know, the pariahs of the world. 
Oh, totally, Mike. And let's not forget the reality here. I think the UK derogates from one report I read about 18% of ECHR rulings. The French are in the 30% mark. The Spanish and Italians are over 50%. So this idea that somehow that we're these big rule breakers, a big nasty uh, country that doesn't care, is totally for the birds. What we want to do is take back control of our laws and our borders. That's what we need to deliver on. And like you say, Mike, if other European countries are cracking on and doing this, we should be at the forefront of leading the way on this. And I do think the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, to give them their full credit, understand that and have been working tirelessly on this. And I will uh, commend them for all the efforts they've been putting in, particularly over this Easter recess with myself and Danny Kruger, looking at the amendments that we laid. And I think we'll get somewhere in the coming days. Yeah, because we're reading this morning that that Richard Sunak was was urging you guys not to derail the legislation. So were you able to give him that assurance? Well, look, it's totally correct that the Prime Minister should say that we don't want to enter into a blue-on-blue. I think the the country saw an offer that, sadly, at the end of 2022. Mm. What we want to make it very clear is that the Labour Party are the party of open borders, free movement, and despite trying to talk tough on Brexit, despite the fact that Keir Starmer was a massive Ramona and somebody wanted a people's vote, as he called it, uh, I would say a traitor's vote, I think it's fair to say, Mike, at the end of the day, trying to overturn the democratic will of the people of this great country. Despite the fact he was best mates with Jeremy Corbyn, now he's saying he's no longer friends with him. The fact he had 10 pledges, as one of your guests said earlier, and ditched them as soon as he became leader. This man is a habitual liar to his own membership, Mm. let alone the rest of the country, because he can't keep a uh, persistent uh, promise in place without having to pivot from one side of the fence to the other. So that's where our fire needs to be concentrated on. That's where the people of this great country need to understand. And as you read probably, Mike, yesterday, the fact that Labour run Wales wants to create some sort of universal basic income, I Mm. think it was saying in the report, giving out £1,600 in cash, as well as giving them legal aid to these illegal economic migrants to help them fight their case is absolutely terrifying. And I'm still waiting for Sir Keir Starmer to condemn this and put Mark Drakeford back in his place. Well, he keeps forgetting as well, of course, that uh, in Wales, the NHS is in an even more parlous state than it is in this country. I mean, my favourite refrain is that actually it's wrong to blame the government uh, for the NHS failings because the NHS is failing because the people that run it don't know what they're doing. But if you are going to blame government, as Keir Starmer does, and today he's saying the NHS is broken, what does he say about what it is in Wales? Well, exactly. I'm, we're waiting for these answers, Mike. And the problem is that Keir Starmer is seeing the polls slowly narrow and they accept it's slow. But because what's happened is he's finally starting to be held to his feet to the fire, being asked, how will you do this? How will you pay for it? And, you know, what are your ideas? And the reality is that they've still got a blank piece of paper. They don't know what it is that they want to do. They just have some these bizarre attack ads that, as you say, have backfired because it's shone a light on the fact that Emily Thornbury, his own attorney general, was having a go at him when he was the director of public prosecutions for being an absolute disgrace and a failure in actually making sure that convictions, particularly those for some of the most serious crimes, uh, were going to prison. So mm. we won't be taking any lectures from Sir Keir Starmer. We won't be taking any lectures from the Labour Party because what we know is the Labour Party are just basically trying to, uh, you know, uh, run a campaign to deflect from their own failings. And ultimately, the British public are not stupid, even though the Labour Party think they are. The British public are very intelligent and they can see what's going on here, which is Labour's trying to deflect and the Conservatives won't allow them to do it. The other big issue of the summer is clearly going to be as well these nutters from Extinction Rebellion who have apparently issued you all with an ultimatum, you know, like some kind of Bond villain with a stroking of a cat sitting there going, you must do by five o'clock on Monday the 24th of April this, otherwise all hell will break loose. I mean, I don't know whether you've received the ultimatum, I don't know whether you're going to do anything about it, but it would also be nice to see Keir Starmer uh, having a go, wouldn't it? 
Well, it would be nice to see Keir Starmer having a go. The problem is that the people who run these organisations are funding the Labour Party, and clearly he wants to keep the money coming into the Labour Party coffers, otherwise he'd be kicking off about this much more. As for the ultimatum, Mike, I don't know yet if I've received it. I'll be checking that later on today. But if I have, I'll be replying to them <laughs> saying to stick it where the sun doesn't shine, to be perfectly <laughs> frank with you. And I wish them the very best of luck coming to Stoke-on-Trent and telling people who are working tirelessly in the ceramic sector, which is one of the great things of our great nation and was exported around the world, that is part of Stoke-on-Trent's story. But yes, it's an energy-intensive industry that would like to decarbonise as and when the technology is available and is reliable for the, to them to do so. I wish them the very best of luck because I know what Stokies are going to say. They're going to suggest that they get quickly on their train back to London mm. where they have their avocado and quinoa and chai lattes waiting for them in some North Islington coffee bar. Yeah, I wouldn't advise them to glue themselves to anything in Stoke, to be honest. Oh, I don't think you heard me. Are you still hearing me? Oh, sorry, Mike. Yes, I can hear you. Sorry, I just lost you for a bit there. Yeah, no, sorry. No, I, said I, did, I just said I don't think I'd advise them to glue themselves to anything in Stoke because people might just leave them there and use them as ornaments. No, I don't think he's hearing me. I think we'll have to cut that one short. Oh, Jonathan hey, Gallus, thanks very much indeed. I can't hear you, Mike. Sorry. Now, Jonathan Gallus has lost, uh, lost reception there. Not to worry. Uh, it sounded like there was a bit of action going on in the background as well. Uh, we'll be bringing you more, of course, on Extinction Rebellion and the activists and their um, supposed threat to disrupt everything, including London Marathon this weekend. The Krusties are at it again. How do you know it's spring? How do you know? I'll tell you how you know, because they all come creeping out of their universities. The holidays are over uh, and now it's going to be quite nice weather. So it's lovely time to go and sit on a road for a while and pour soup over some paintings. Isn't it marvellous? And they're so posh. I mean, this kid from Cambridge, right, Ed Red, and the other guy who was on with Julian this morning, Etienne. You know, why can't they just have ordinary names? They can't. Ed Red is apparently the son of a very wealthy investor uh, who lives in a massive house near Sir Peter Hall in Cambridge, right? Uh, drives around in some lovely cars. Um, and of course, he goes to Exeter University where he studies PPE, politics, philosophy and economics. But he's got plenty of time to get arrested and even go to jail. And he's vowed. The only good news about him is he's vowed not to have children. Because why? It's immoral. Well, it might be immoral for you, mate, but there's lots of people who like having children and lots of people who enjoy it. So if you've dedicated yourself to saving the planet, good luck. Hopefully, uh, you'll be behind bars again soon. This is Talk TV. Edgy Talk. Plain Talk. Unrivaled Talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots to do and uh, we've got two more hours to do it in. Prime Minister's Questions is back today, of course. We've got uh, one and only Sir Keir Starmer, uh, who's managing to snatch a defeat from the jaws of victory so far in the polls because the polls are getting closer and closer every time he opens his mouth now and contradicts himself. Every time they put out another attack ad, the Labour Party fall uh, in the estimate of the public of this country because the great British public are not stupid, as Jonathan Gullis MP told us just before uh, the news and the last hour. We've also got, of course, Rishi Sunak. We're not sure what the focus of the debate is going to be today uh, in the chamber, in the House of Commons, and what the most uh, important questions will be. But I'll tell you what they could talk about if they... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wanted to was this extraordinary revelation from the Taxpayers Alliance here in the United Kingdom um, that some of the highest paid council members workers at councils, executives at councils, managers at councils, senior people who are not councillors, not elected people, but basically civil servants, are being paid absolute fortunes, more than six figures, thousands of them, some of them in the high six figures, even as much as half a million pounds a year. The remuneration, ladies and gentlemen, is quite eye-watering. Incredible stuff. Let's talk to Joe Ventry uh, from the Taxpayers Alliance to find out uh, exactly just how much these people are costing us. Joe, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. Another great piece of work by your organisation, Taxpayers Alliance. Um, and without you guys, we wouldn't know half this stuff. So, so tell us the extent of the problem. I mean, how, I, mean I don't suppose you've been able to, to calculate the full amount of money that's being paid out to every council in the country. But the eye-watering figures, like 600-and-odd thousand for, for somebody running a council, a woman in Sunderland who's only running a part of a council's budget, um, is on over half, half a million. It's incredible. It is. And, you know, I tell you, Mike, we compile this uh, this piece of research every single year, and every single year it, it never fails to surprise. And I think what particularly stings this year is, of course, that we're seeing these 5% council tax rises coming mm. in across the country, in some cases 10% and 15%, where the councils have really messed up their own finances. So I think the sting this year is particularly hard felt. And I think that's why that's, this story is really resonating with a lot of council taxpayers this morning. Uh, oh, absolutely right. Because, I mean, even if you were to take away the ludicrous ones, which are kind of above 280,000, so there's not too many above that, but sort of the top five, um, many, many of them over 200,000 a year, which most people would say for a public sector job, that's just not acceptable. You know, the argument that we hear all the time is that chief executives at councils must be paid uh, commensurately with the private sector because, technically speaking, they could be running something like BP. Well, they're not running something like BP. And also the chairman of BP is responsible to the board of BP and to the shareholders. The shareholders in this instance are you and I, and we don't get a say. Absolutely. And I think, you know, people will often say, well, you know, the leaders of councils have a lot of responsibility, they manage a lot of services and whatnot. But like you say, when there's that comparison with the private sector, of course, what we would say there is 
there is a certain level of accountability. And I think if you're found to be, uh, you know, delivering poor services, as, you know, we go up and down the country and talk to people all the time and ask them, you know, how satisfied are you with your council? Are they collecting your bins on time? Mm. Are they filling the potholes? And more often than not, people will say, no, absolutely not. And to, to think that the people that are running what are often poor services could be rewarded in this way, I think, is is highly damaging. And I think this ultimately is a, a really big accountability effort. And I'd urge everyone today looking at these numbers to look at your own council, go on our website, taxpayersalliance.com forward slash rich list, have a look at your council and really make your mind up as to whether your council is delivering on its priorities. Absolutely right. And what you'll also find if you look into your um, your list uh, with, 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 a, with a very weathered eye and with any great detail is the kinds of jobs that these people have got. Like, for example, the Sunderland um, council woman whose name is Fiona Brown. Her, ti- her job title is Executive Director of Neighbourhoods, right? Now, how many executive directors of various other things are there? She's on 573,000 quid, you know. I mean, there's probably at least another 10 of her, right? Exactly, and these things all add up. I mean, one that jumped out to me this morning was the uh, Director of Financial Services at Chelmsford. Mm. Uh, this person received uh, an exit payment, a loss of office payment of over £200,000. Uh, extraordinary money. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of us wouldn't be able to, to see in our salaries, for sure. No, quite. Uh, so I think you see these roles and you see these payments, because we, we look at total remuneration, mm. and that's you know, salary, pay, perks these loss of office payments. And it really, really adds up to these extraordinary amounts that most of us could only dream of. Yeah. Well, again, lots of people have asked me this question this morning. Who decides on the remuneration for these people? Because I assume it's probably the Association of Local Government or something like that, some professional body or other, because they do vary quite widely. I mean, your your sort of bottom line number is 2,759 council bosses received over 100,000 last year. But why, for example, you know, does the chief executive of Luton Council, Robin Pauzer, get 250,000, uh, whereas the chief executive of Southampton gets 406? I mean, that's a big difference. Exactly. The, the variation is quite staggering. I think it shows you the degree to which, you know, councils differ in the way that they, they operate and they manage their own finances. Right. And what I would say to those councils that have these extraordinary pay bills is look at other councils. Look what other councils are doing to keep their pay bills down while, you know, in a lot of cases offering better services and learn what you can from those because I don't think there's any excuse in a lot of cases for, you know, these sky-high exit payments but huge bonus payments. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. But is there actually a central body or is it just up to the local council? I mean, could, for example, Southampton say, well, we want to pay our chief executive over 400. Um, I don't care that Luton's guy only gets 250. I mean, is it, is it in their power to do that? So councils do have a lot of autonomy in terms of how they uh, they pay their staff. And that is why you see those huge variations. But, you know, another thing that we find really concerning, and this would really jumped out this year in particular, was that almost 12% of councils that we looked at failed to get their accounts ready in right. time. You know, that's an absolutely shameful statistic. Well, they obviously, they obviously need in... more highly paid uh, uh, accountants, don't they? <laughs> that's certainly the argument they'll make, isn't it? But, you know, I think what we've got to ask is, you know, these are bodies that should be delivering public services. They should be collecting bins, you know, filling potholes and all the rest of it. If they can't even manage to get their accounts filed on time, what hope do they have? And I think we really need to look at these uh, these councils through uh, you know a, a, through a good lens, 
and evaluate what's going wrong here. And let's get back to basics. Yeah, I've got this from Chris in Welsh Wales. You might like this one. Uh, Mikey says, in Wales, we have 22 local authorities to cover 3 million people. This is the same as Birmingham City, which has one local authority. It is not just the £250,000 plus wages. They get 20% plus of their wages contributed to their pension pot by the employer. Mark Drakeford was going to reduce it to around seven local authorities to match the health authority boundaries. But when he asked the chief executives what they thought about it, 15 of them being made redundant, they said they weren't keen on the idea and he dropped the whole plan. <laughs> well, exactly, doesn't it? And, you know, the variations there, again, are staggering. Yeah. You know, and what, what people will say is, well, you know, again, these are people that have huge responsibilities. They oversee a lot of people. Uh, but you know, a really staggering comparison that you can make, right? If you look at salaries alone, 165 people on our list have a salary alone greater than that of the Prime Minister this year. Right. And, you know, so the scales just really don't add up mm. in a lot of cases. And right. I do think it ultimately comes down to accountability. And when you see the, the, the amounts of remuneration, for example, for, um, you know, loss of job or, or some redundancy payment or something like that, what are the rules for those? Because those seem very high as well. So the Taxpayers Alliance for many years campaigned for a cap on exit payments uh, around £95,000, which we thought was, you know, a quite generous amount, yeah. frankly, as, as an upper limit. Right. Uh, the government did implement that some years ago uh, for three months until it was ultimately reversed mm. when the unions kick up, a, kick up a stink and all the rest of it. Yeah. And so, you know, so we're still seeing these exit payments well into the six figures that are a real kick in the teeth to taxpayers. Mm. And we're still calling for that cap to be re-implemented. It's just basic common sense and basic justice for uh, people to go out and, uh, and pay their taxes. Yeah. And are these payment uh, sort of, uh, uh, totals that you've put in here, are they, do they include the pension part as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. And they do make a big part of those remuneration packages. Because, and, and of course, know, uh, with every year, that gets bigger and bigger, right? Absolutely. And we know that, you know, working in the public sector, you know, one of the things you can uh, expect from that is a good pension. Uh, But it it just really shows how much of a burden this really adds to. I mean, you know, councils will often say, oh, well, this isn't a fair reflection of pay because, you know, you're including our pensions. Well, you know, pensions are essentially deferred pay and they end up accruing these huge pots, which ultimately taxpayers are on the hook for. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, Mark from Bristol uh, is asking, where can we find out the salaries of our councillors again, please? Uh, It's on the Taxpayers Alliance website, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. If you go on taxpayersalliance.com forward slash rich list, there's a searchable table on there, which I'd urge everyone listening and watching now to have a look at. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic resource for anybody who wants to know why it is that their council uh, doesn't have any money to spend on uh, anything else, because they basically spend it all of themselves. As we've talked before, Joe, about how more than 75 to 80 percent of your council tax money actually just goes to pay the salaries of council employees and to pay for their pensions. Exactly. There's this burgeoning bureaucracy that seems to grow and grow every year. And it seems like the fundamental services that councils are there to provide and that taxpayers pay their hard-earned money for seem to go by the wayside. Mm. As you say, the libraries close, bin collections get less and less frequent. And I do think we need to get back to basics with councils and say, you know, what are you actually there to do? Who are you there to serve? Well, exactly. I mean, one of the things they would say in their own defence, I suppose, is that one of the reasons that they have so little money for ordinary people in the community is that they're spending a lot on social care. And I understand that. And I've argued in the past that social care should be taken out of their hands. But nevertheless, there's a hell of a lot of money getting wasted. Well, that's it. And, you know, I don't think you'll find anyone being critical of councils using their money to provide social care. Mm. I mean, they, you know, it's a very serious service that they provide. But what I would say then is all the more reason to trim the fat, all the more reason to cut down on pet projects, on you know, sky high exit payments, all these things that really add up. 
and add to those bills and get back to basics with those core services. Yeah, absolutely right. Joe, great to talk to you and well done again uh, on a fantastic operation. Taxpayers Alliance there with a tremendous um, piece of information that you should genuinely go and check out on their website because you will find your own council there and then you can see how much the chief executive is getting paid and you will be absolutely staggered. It's extraordinary. I mean, the one place now where you know uh, that you can have an absolutely fantastic life is the public sector. It was never meant to be like that. Public sector was meant to be for people uh, who had sort of vocational type training, people who wanted to help the community, people who wanted to be in the health service, people who wanted to be police officers, people who wanted to be in the fire service, people who didn't really mind so much about the money, but the perks were better. You didn't have to work for as long. You could retire earlier. um, You could get a decent pension. But the salary wasn't that great commensurate to the private sector because of all of those reasons. Now, you've got the big salary as well. It's absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to Robert Hardman, British journalist, author and documentary filmmaker. I'm going to call him an historian as well because we're going to talk about one of Britain's last D-Day veterans who's died at the age of 100. And since I was just on one of the D-Day beaches last week, we thought this was a good moment to remember that uh, and to talk about Joe Catini, uh, one of the heroes of that day. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The return of Prime Minister's questions, of course, coming up today at midday. We'll bring it to you live right here on Talk TV. Sakia Starmer, Rishi Sunak, uh, the baying mob. Wonder what they'll be talking about. Wonder what they'll decide is the burning issue of the day. Uh, we're going to talk now, though, to Robert Hardman, uh, journalist of the Daily Mail, author of Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, uh, a book out now and available in a paperback because um, today is a bit of a sad day, really. Joe Catini, one of Britain's last D-Day veterans, has died at the age of 100. Um, and Robert has uh, spoken and written about uh, Joe before. And one of the reasons, actually, that I wanted to talk to Robert about this is I was just there uh, over in Normandy last week uh, with my own children. And I was walking on Omaha Beach with my 18-year-old and my 16-year-old and telling them that, you know, if this had been 1944, at least one of you would probably have been here. And it was a really very moving moment, actually. Um, Robert, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning. How, Thank, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for, for joining us. Uh, I mean, um, Joe Catini, one of the last remaining D-Day veterans, quite a character, um, as, as you've written about in the past. A beloved granddad, uh, said his granddaughter Sarah, uh, died on Tuesday evening. A life so well lived, one of the last D-Day veterans left. We are so proud of him and loved him so much. And, and as I say, poignantly for me, purely by chance, I was there um, in Normandy last week with my kids. And... Um, it's quite a remarkable thing to walk on that beach. It, it's incredibly moving. I always find it, you know, you can get there as many times as you like, but yeah. it, it just, that the enormity, that the, 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 how much hinged on that. I mean, the future of the free world hinged on uh, on those men yeah. and their, their capacity to, to land on and hold those beaches. And, and now, of course, it all looks very pretty and 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 you think well you know of course they were going to win it was absolutely in the balance um uh, it was it could have gone either way um and i don't know mike whether you were able to visit the um normandy memorial that's recently uh opened on the beaches yes uh, yeah well that um joe uh who who has sadly just just died um joe was one of the this extraordinary band of uh veterans who always found it um 
baffling and, and rather upsetting that every other nation at D-Day, all the other Allied nations, had their own national memorial, mm. except for Britain. Right. We had lots of little memorials and memorials to different regiments and corps and ships and what have you. But there was not a an overall memorial to the, 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 the 24,000 um, British servicemen and two servicewomen as well who died um, during not just the D-Day landings, but the Battle of Normandy that followed. And the yeah. Battle of Normandy that followed was was, was every bit as horrible as D-Day itself. Right. I mean, it was vicious fighting. Yeah. And Joe was one of those who said, we've got to get this memorial going. And, and, and a small group of them, uh, 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 also aided, I have to say, by uh, Nicholas Witchell, the BBC's um, uh, royal editor, who, who, who was absolutely pivotal as well. And this little team uh, battled for years to get the funding to put this memorial up. And, and it was a great, great moment. Sadly, due to lockdown, um, it, it had to be done sort of remotely yeah. uh, from the National Arboretum. But boy, were they proud when it opened. And yeah. I, I, I saw Joe um, after lockdown. He was out there with a group of veterans just to sort of see it for themselves for the first time. And it was so moving to mm. see that. And they could go around. It's got the name of every single uh, Normandy uh, or everybody who died in the Battle of Normandy. They're all there. They're mm. all listed according to the day they died. And mm. watch them going around looking for old maids. It's just, you know, it's, it's an amazing feat. And uh, I think, you know, on a day like today, um, as, as we say goodbye to Joe, I think we should say a big thank you for not just what sure. they did uh, in uh, in 1944, but also what they've done in the last few years. Definitely so. And as as I sort of walked around that area where I hadn't spent a great deal of time in the past since I was since I was quite young, really. Um, you know, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, but when you think of what it must have been like, as you say, the Normandy battle, which was incredibly hard fought and very bloody. Um, you can while you're there, it's the strangest thing I felt. You could feel like you could kind of see it almost. Yeah, you can. You can. You can. You can revisit. Uh, obviously, some bits have sort of have been built over. Mm. Um, I mean, I think there is a tendency always to look at the D Day and, and Normandy through the prism of the beaches. And yeah. I mean, obviously, that central bit. I mean, you've got to get them on the ground. Got to get them there. Mm. Uh, and you know, and, and Joe was one of those who, 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 you know, went in time and again uh, to, uh, to 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 land um, troops on those beaches under enemy fire. But even once you got ashore, um, for many people. Uh, that's that's when it really got mm. hairy. I mean, most most of the the, the 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 thousands who died in Normandy didn't die on the beaches. They died in in in, in on June the sixth. Yes, June the sixth was D Day. But you look at the, the the dates of of when people died. It was it was a late June, all through July mm. into August. These horrible battles in what they call the Bocage, the hedgerows of Normandy, mm. uh, which were these sort of very ancient hedgerows but they were they were tough and and and, and they were perfect cover for the enemy mm. so you might be walking across a field but suddenly you know the enemy would open up you, you had sort of tanks hiding in little nooks and crannies i mean it was it was vicious stuff mm. uh and 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 the battle to take the city of Caen, um which shouldn't fall till july i mean that 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 cost thousands of british lives yes. and they're all they're all commemorated in this. There's no, there's no sort of, no, no one's forgotten. And but ultimately, of course, you know, it it, it led to the, the the fall of Paris, and, yeah. and, and everything just changed from there on. So I mean, this is one of the great. I mean, we talk about pivotal moments. Well, it was the pivotal moment, really, wasn't it? Was it? The pivotal moment in, in modern history, oh. I would argue. Yeah, absolutely right. And funnily enough, Julie Hartley Brew and I were talking this morning about you know the sort of Tarquin and Jemima crowd who uh, want us to stop driving around in cars because the world's coming to an end and throwing powder everywhere and gluing themselves to things. And she said, why are they doing it? And I think it's really, really because they've had such great, lovely, privileged lives that they've got nothing 
nothing really to worry about. So now they're worrying about something that isn't really worth worrying about. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't suppose Joe and his comrades thought they were they were doing what they were doing to, to defend people's rights to glue themselves to snooker tables. But frankly, they were. I yeah. mean, you know, the, 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 the kind of the do anything, go anywhere freedoms that we enjoy today, mm. which then to protesting about whatever you like. I mean, that's all thanks to that. All mm. I can say is if D-Day had gone wrong, you wouldn't be gluing yourself to a snooker table, or at least if you did, um, it would have very unhappy consequences. Yes. And- world that would have followed i think absolutely right um talking tradition i suppose we saw just the other night a bit of a rehearsal uh, in the mall for the, the coronation which is not very far away now um just a glimpse really into what the pageantry will be like and it looked pretty magnificent i was i was hearing last night that it's the biggest sort of military turnout um for many a year bigger than what mm. we saw last year at the funeral and bigger than the jubilee and all of that uh, the household cavalry uh, and some various coaches um what is it going to be like do you think uh, on the day i think it's going to be an extraordinary event that frankly uh your generation and my might won't have seen before i mean you've got to be now well into your 80s there we see the uh the the, the household cavalry mm. and the the horses of the Royal Muse uh, going through the motions. I mean, they are rather wonderful, these 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 rehearsals in the middle of the night. There's no one around. Um, uh, and and there, there you see them making sure, you know, when we, when we look at these, these extraordinary events and think, you know, don't they do it wonderfully? Well, they do it wonderfully and brilliantly and faultlessly because they're practicing at 2 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> uh, weeks, weeks in advance. That's that's why. Yes. Um, and it is. It's it's just done so well. And, and you know, all the armed forces, I mean, they all owe their, their loyalty to, uh, to, to the monarch. Yeah. And so, you know, when the monarch is crowned, they want to play their part. And it is going to be, I think, around 5,000, 6,000 troops. It's not it's not on the same scale as in 1953, uh, just because it can't be. I mean, mm. back then, forces were, were very much bigger um, and they had very much longer to prepare. And you had sort of, you know, contingents from all over the world um, marching in, in, in different Commonwealth units. I mean, all the Commonwealth will be represented mm. uh, in the Commonwealth procession, uh, sorry, in the coronation procession on May the 6th. It's just going to be, it, it won't be the same size as 53, but it's still going to be, a great moment, yes. um, not, just, not just the procession, which we saw just there, but also inside the Abbey. I mean, it'll be the first time we've seen things like, you know, the, King Edward's crown and, 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 and orbs and scepters, mm. spurs and ampulas. I mean, you know, all that stuff. Right. Uh, you know, it'll be the first time in, in 70 years. Dusted it all down. Yeah, extraordinary. And, it'll, <clears throat> and as you say, certainly for our generation, it will probably be the last one we see as well. But, but uh, you know, we, you never know, I suppose. But sadly... Um, for Joe and Joe Cattini's uh, generation, they did also fight for the right of the anti-monarchist types to stand around with yellow um, T-shirts on, chanting, not my king, which I think is a rather sad thing for them to do. Well, again, it's it's part of, you know, living in a, in a, in a free society. Um, nobody's going to stop uh, those protests. Um, I mean, it's interesting they... They didn't used to do that um, for the Queen mm. because I think they would have. Uh, they might have found they were um, being rugby tackled to the floor in seconds. Um, but you know, we live in the times we live in. But it's always interesting, and I've been at some of these events where where these the, this Republican uh, group turn up, uh, and you know that's that's their right to be there. Um, uh, but they do represent a, a small minority, and, and you'll normally see in a crowd of thousand, two thousand people, you might see a dozen of these posters. Mm. So they're not. Uh, they're making a lot of noise, and I think you know they're getting a bit of attention, um, as is as is what they're after. Um, but you know, the bottom line is that that even in 1953, funnily enough, um, there was a good 20% of the country 
didn't want a monarchy. Mm. And that's, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's 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 freedom of speech. Yeah. Uh, and those figures really haven't moved much. I mean, I think if you if you ask people today, um, you know, they might not be as passionate as they were about it in 53, but it's still an overwhelming mm. majority of people um, believe that the, the current system we have, and it's totally irrational, we all get that. If you were starting a country tomorrow, you would not say, I know, we want one family, we're going to put them in charge for perpetuity. It, it, you know, you wouldn't do that. But uh, it's the system we have. We've grown up with it. It's served us extremely well. It's why we have this, this stability that, that so many other countries lack. Mm. Uh, and and, and it's, it's just the system that, that, that most people are happy with. Yeah. And I think what I would always say to these uh, Republican protesters is, um, you know, they always complain that there's something undemocratic about monarchy. Well, it's a constitutional monarchy. It's we, we are in a democracy. Anyone is very welcome to start an anti-royalist party and stand for election on a ticket of taking down the throne, electing a president. All I would say is you go start that party, stand at an election, see how many votes you get. And then uh, and then let's talk. Right. Very well said. Uh, your book is out, uh, Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, Robert Hardman, uh, journalist at the Daily Mail as well. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we'll come back with more uh, of your calls as well. But also, what about the threat to UK security currently underway from China, of all places? This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here at Talk TV. Coming up at midday, of course, it is Prime Minister's Questions, the return uh, after the Easter recess. Uh, Parliament has reconvened uh, and Sakir Starr will be up against Rishi Sunak. Uh, what will they argue about? What will they talk about? They should be talking about the migrant crisis. They should be talking about the economy, no doubt. They should be talking about the striking doctors and the NHS and its failings. Uh, and Keir Starmer apparently uh, has been banging on about the fact that the NHS is broken. Yeah, it was broken by the NHS. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, so I no doubt I'll be banging on about that, but we shall see. Right now, though, it's time to talk to Cindy Yu, Assistant Editor of The Spectator, presenter of the Our Chinese Whispers podcast as well. Because let's face it, here we have a situation in the UK uh, where we talk about TikTok all the time. Uh, we do talk about spyware. We talk about malware. We talk about whether uh, there are national security concerns uh, around Russia and around China as well. Um, and let's find out exactly where we are um, right now, because there's been all sorts of security alert threats, all sorts of worries. Ian Duncan Smith uh, has slammed the United Kingdom for weakness um, after the Chinese threat was uh, uh, the warning was made. Um, Cindy, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, it seems to be a, an interesting time at the moment in terms of the way um, that Britain's relationship with China is going. We've got Ian Duncan Smith, who is, of course, one of those Conservative MPs who uh, was put on a list of people who were not welcome in China. Um, we've got TikTok being banned from use inside of the parliamentary estate, pretty much, uh, particularly on official government phones. Um, worries that China is using TikTok um, as a, a sort of commercial uh, lever, if you like, into uh, the security systems of the UK. Um, is China a threat to the UK? I mean, I think uh, James Cleverly put it quite well today as Foreign Secretary when he said that we don't identify any of our bilateral relationships with just one word. So I think, you know, in some ways, this is a bit of a semantic argument. Um, of course, there are certain areas in which China is threatening, uh, but then there are also areas in which that we do have to work with China. Um, and I think fundamentally, what we're seeing is that for the first time since the end of the Cold War, the last few decades where the Americans have had this kind of unipolar moment, 
there is a challenger. There's a challenger on the horizon. And that's what we in the West had to deal with. So, you know, I, I think to some extent, this is just semantics. Yes. And what about the TikTok arguments? Because obviously the US have sort of picked up on some of the TikTok problems in government as well. Um, and TikTok, of course, is a commercial organisation, but it is said to be more or less hooked into, if you like, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it seems a bit ridiculous to say you can't have it on a government phone, but you can have it on your own phone. Well, I think I can kind of see the reasoning behind it. I mean, I have to say I'm not a technical expert on this. I'm not a cybersecurity expert. But in my understanding, the idea is that apps like TikTok, just like Instagram and most of our social media apps, collect a huge amount of data in your phone. Some of them seem to be able to track your activities across your apps. So even if you don't have something open, it seems like it might be able to read uh what let's say something is in your email or something like that, or at least there are concerns about that, those kinds of backdoors. So if TikTok is friendly with the Chinese Communist Party, which by the way, that would be through its parent company, ByteDance, which yeah. is the technical uh, company here. Um, and we don't have a smoking gun here to say that they do share that data. But the worry is of course that Ch Ch the Chinese Communist Party can lean on any Chinese companies and get the data that they want. So if you're James Cleverly or Ian Duncan Smith, and you've got you know classified information on your government phones, then yeah, I think it probably is a good idea to not have TikTok on there. But for ordinary citizens, you know, we have to think about how much of our data we want to give away on social media anyway. So I think, you know, unless you do work in government, it probably... Yes, indeed. I mean, one of the things that, that I suppose you should be concerned about if you're uh, in government is what has been said by the National Security Cyber Security Centre boss, which is a woman called Lindy Cameron, who said that the West faces an epoch-defining challenge from China, um, as if it's somehow leading up to a point at which, you know, security is in uh, peril in some way. Yes, those words are directly lifted out of the updated integrated review, which is the government's uh, overall strategy for foreign policy, uh, which obviously had a huge chunk on China in it. So I think she's kind of going along with Rishi Sunak's line there. Uh, but as I say, you know, it is <laughs> it is clearly an epoch defining challenge. We haven't had a challenge like this in the West since the end of the Cold War. Mm. Uh, so it's very interesting that Lindy Cameron also talked about how China doesn't want parity on technology. It wants supremacy. And I think that is also true. And that has been uh, clearly been the case ever since that China's economy has started, you know, coming on in, in leaps and strides yeah. and afford to invest in the technologies and the science that we in the West want to be good at as well. So it, it is a, a second arms race on this front, on yeah. a technology race. Other interesting stories this week have included one in the Times in which a Chinese businessman linked to um, the Tory party and fundraising dinners supposedly was running um, an operation in Croydon, it's, it is alleged, uh, which was a sort of overseas Chinese police station. I mean, these stories are quite remarkable, aren't they? Very remarkable um, if it is proven true. And I think we have to be very careful to say that these are just allegations at the moment. Um, it seems like the man in question has admitted that he was running some kind of uh, consulate service for renewing passports. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> out of his own company, you know, local, a deal struck up with a local authority in China, which the Chinese side have said that they, these are police stations. So there's a lot of question marks over exactly what is happening in this Croydon outlet. Uh, but yes, I read that Times story very, very carefully. And I think that if he had broken any laws, if he's a spy of some sort, I think we would hear more from people like Linda Cameron from these secret services on, you know, whether or not he is a spy. Uh, but I think 
a lot of it at the moment is allegations. Um, And it's very hard to comment on just how uh, much of a threat this is, considering it's it's a lot of smoke rather than any... uh, particular fire that yeah. we've seen. I mean, it, it may be that it's not necessarily a, a threat in, in any way to, to UK security, but it's just a sort of an odd, I suppose it's just an oddity if you've got somebody operating as a private individual, uh, but sort of operating for a state, because if he's not doing anything illegal, why not just do it out of the embassy? Yes, well, precisely. You know, if, if all he was doing was renewing passports, then surely the embassy can do that. Yeah. I have to say, as someone who has got a few Chinese visas over the last uh, five, five or so years, you know, the embassy is very bad to be dealing with. Yeah, maybe does it, maybe does, a, maybe does a better fast track service. Maybe you just hop <laughs> down there and see how yeah, it goes. Yeah, go to the Croydon. Yeah, go to Croydon takeaway instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but right. you know, I mean, jokes aside, you know, it is very confusing. And I, I would hope, you know, the Home Office is uh, on the case. I hope uh, actually investigating what exactly this man has done, what exactly what laws are being broken here. Um, and Mike, as you know, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about the reputation all of this gives to the Chinese diaspora in the UK. Uh, and I wouldn't want, uh, you know, people to think that any Chinese takeaway they walk into is being spied on by the CCP, because that's clearly not true. Um, so, yes, let, let's see what actually is happening here. Um, and, you know, the government should be re- investigating it. Yeah, absolutely. And one final piece that caught my eye this week was in Unheard, um, written by David Rose, a piece about... Um, because we're talking a lot this morning about Extinction Rebellion, um, what's likely to happen at the weekend, possibly with uh, a, a direct sort of action against the London Marathon. Um, there's a very interesting piece in Unheard about how uh, some people who you would regard as big bankrollers of the Extinction Rebellion movement were recently actually in China at a, at a meeting of the Chinese Communist Party and suggestions in the piece that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of suiting because China's government has set up a kind of environmental committee. You know, they mm. talk a lot about, you know, making the economy more green, even though you know we know they're building more coal power fire stations every five minutes um but but certainly there's a suggestion that that you know it's it's it sort of suits their purpose to see what extinction rebellion does here I have to say, I haven't read that piece, um, so I don't know exactly what these individuals um, are said to have done. Uh, But yes, you're right, Mike. Uh, China is really thinking about the next stage of world development when it comes to tackling climate change. And yes, you're right that it's building new coal power plants still at home. Uh, But at the same time, it has got already an absolute lead in the renewables industry. It is already the world leading producer of wind and solar power and panels uh, and also its electric vehicles. I think we're going to be start to seeing in European showrooms very, very soon, um, which explains some of the subsidies that the Americans have put on their EV side. Mm. Um, so I think, yes, absolutely. China's a big polluter, but as ever with China, it's a very complicated story, often paradoxical. It is also a world leading renewables power. So we have to think about if climate change, if tackling climate change is the way we're going down, um, do we end up actually building China into the supply chain much more than we realised before? Yeah, maybe so. We shall see. Sydney, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Sydney, you assistant editor, spectator and presenter of our Chinese Whispers podcast. Fascinating, though, uh, this piece in Unheard. I've tweeted it out uh, about how some of the people who spend an awful lot of money uh, and openly support uh, financially places like Extinction Rebellion uh, were in China for this meeting, but uh, something we can talk about uh, perhaps another time. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.